We stand today at the threshold of a great event. Both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe. This universal declaration of human rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Human rights for everyone, for men and women, for the majority and the minority, especially the minority. The big idea of the Universal Declaration is that everyone on the globe has the same political, social, and economic rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity. All human beings. All humans are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Without distinction of any kind, such as race, such as race, color, color sex, sex, language, language religion, religion, freedom of expression. No one shall be held. No one shall be held in slavery and servitude. In slavery and servitude. But if history tells us anything, it's that the big idea and the way we live it in real life don't always match up. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Jazz has been fantastic in terms of human rights around race and economics and empowerment. It's been pretty terrible around gender. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. Their presence on the stage and the quality of their work would have been the argument that they put forth against the sexism, against the marginalization, against the racism. It's a new life for me, yeah, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. Ooh. It's its blind spot, it's Achilles' heel. And I'm feeling good. This is The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights, a documentary look at jazz, blues, and human rights as they are spelled out in the United Nations Declaration. I'm Alana Bridgewater. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. Today we take on the women of jazz, how they advance the rights of women and racial equality, not just in music, but in the world in which they performed, and how some of these women paid a steep price for the chances they took. It was an amazing, cathartic moment, and the rest is history. And unfortunately, that notion of physical and sexual vulnerability was a constant in the lives of both black and white women who operated in jazz. In the 1920s, Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five are recording the so-called race records for black audiences. But his popularity reaches past race and gender. His piano player is a woman. Lil Hardin Armstrong, who organized those Hot Fives and Hot Seven sessions. Lil Hardin Armstrong, 
born in 1898 in Memphis, Tennessee. As a girl, she learned spirituals and the classics on piano. She plays the vaudeville stage. She plays with Freddie Keppard's Creole Jazz Band in Chicago. In the early 1920s, she meets a young jazz horn player named Louis Armstrong. She marries him in 1924, manages his career, writes songs for him, helps make him a star, while at the same time running her own orchestra. Now you swing over there. Before you swing on out and you do the booze cue. Everybody made fun of her as not being as good a pianist as late Earl Hines or later people, but she was right in there organizing and making it possible for Louis Armstrong to be Louis Armstrong. We should never forget that. Ingrid Monson teaches African-American music at Harvard University. And there have always been women working behind the scenes, all these women behind the scenes that have been part of making the world of jazz possible. But in the history of jazz, along with the great composers and band leaders like Count Basie and Duke Ellington, there are other great composers and band leaders who are less famous. They include Lil Hardin Armstrong, who worked in her husband's shadow. And the most influential of all, the woman whose work touched on so many of the jazz genres of the 20th century. In terms of instrumental performance, most people know Mary Lou Williams. Mary Lou Williams was incredible. She's seen as one of the grand doms of jazz. And did people want to give her a chance when she started? No. She was a deeply talented woman, a composer, and she fought that battle throughout the 1940s. She was born in 1910 in Atlanta, Georgia. Her family migrated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and there her musical talent, this innate musical talent, was discovered and cultivated by her family. Tammy Cronodal is a singer who teaches musicology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. She also wrote the biography, Soul on Soul, The Life and Music of Mary Lou Williams. So her biography intersects with this history of African-Americans migrating northward for new opportunities. But the other aspect of that history is then how does the entertainment world or how does popular culture provide for these black folks? It's been like that with me all my life. I was professional at six years old. The union band used to take me out. Men used to hold me on their laps to play. And it seems that they uh, took an interest in me and took me along with them and taught me everything that I know. And I've been professional for years, you know, and at 12 years old, I was traveling everywhere, you know. So we have a very young Mary Lou Williams who has this extraordinary talent that is being cultivated, so much so that by the time she's 14 or 15, Mary Lou Williams is touring on the Black Vaudeville circuit. She is traversing the United States, at one point in time meets a jazz musician by the name of John Williams, the baritone saxophonist. The two of them develop a relationship and ultimately get married. This marriage and his career leads them to Kansas City, Missouri, where she encounters band leader Andy Kirk. And Andy Kirk 
along with Count Basie and a few other band leaders was really putting the Southwestern jazz scene on the proverbial map. And so while with Andy Kirk, and, and understand she's just accompanying her husband, she's not a part of the band, she begins to develop her skills as an arranger and ultimately becomes the primary arranger, the primary pianist, and one of the prominent soloists for Andy Kirk's 12 Clouds of Joy. that really propel Andy Kirk's band from being just your typical regional territory band that was working the musical territories that stretched between Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas to becoming a national prominent band. And so by the time we crest the height of the swing era or the big band movement in the 1940s, most of your major big bands at that time were playing the music of Mary Lou Williams. She's writing for Jimmy Lunsford. She writes very prominently for Benny Goodman. What Mary Lou did in her arrangements was she really challenged what were some of the paradigms in terms of arranging and really began to integrate what we call vernacular aspects of black music into her arrangements. When she went into Andy Kirk's band, Andy Kirk wanted to be the black guy Lombardo, which means that he really wanted to play the polkas and waltzes and these light classical pieces, right? So he was really modeling himself after successful white band leaders. But you have Mary Lou who started to challenge that aspect because she was very interested in manipulating how the blues would function as a genre within this big band form. The most famous example I can give of her kind of integrating what was music created in the insular spaces of the black community into these larger big band dance forms is a song called Little Joe from Chicago. Little Joe from Chicago is a 1940 B-side with Andy Kirk and his Clouds of Joy on Decca Records. And that particular song is one of the first jazz arrangements that incorporates Boogie Woogie in its most organic form in a big band setting. So Boogie Woogie was a type of blues piano music that developed first in Texas and Louisiana in this very rhythmic style. So the left hand plays this kind of ostinato that's based around the harmonics of the blues progression, the one to four, the five chord. Big blue diamond ring. Little Joe from Chicago. 
never wants for anything. He handles plenty money and he dresses up like a king. So the left hand served as the bass as well as the drum. And then the right hand plays these very syncopated melodies that extend out of these blues harmonies. So it's purely blues, but it's real rockin' dance music. So this kind of hard-driving, rhythmic piano music migrates up the Midwest corridor as the Great Migration spurs all these population shifts. got segregation as well. And so in these incubated spaces of black life, where black people are just trying to make it, Boogie Woogie becomes the music of their recreational time. things like that. And on the surface, they seem simple, but they're very transformative because what you have her doing is meshing black vernacular culture that is in an underground insular environment into this vehicle that has been crafted for public consumption in the form of these dance arrangements. And so by virtue of that, she is creating a different arranging context, but also sonic context for what swing or big band jazz is. I think she's risky in some points in that you have Mary Lou very early using harmonies that are not a part of swing and also using instrument combinations to create different musical colors that we don't hear necessarily until much later. And so I really position her in a continuum that extends from Don Redmond and Fletcher Henderson, who are kind of pioneers of this jazz arranging, and then your Duke Ellington and your Count Basies. In his autobiography, Music is My Mistress, Duke Ellington writes, Mary Lou Williams is perpetually contemporary. Her writing and performing have always been a little ahead throughout her career. Her music retains and maintains a standard of quality that is timeless. She is like soul on soul. And so she's very instrumental in transitioning jazz from simply being what people thought of as a primitive art form that is kind of developing intuitively because of some cultural DNA that these black folks have into a intellectual art 
that is reflecting the same type of intellectual work that we in many ways ascribe only to classical composers or musicians. You're listening to The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. I'm Alana Bridgewater. My name is Robert Mirapol. I am the younger son of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were Americans, convicted of espionage and executed in the electric chair at the start of the new Cold War paranoia in 1953. They had two young sons. I was adopted by Abel and Ann Mirapol when I was six years old. And Abel Mirapol was a songwriter whose most famous song was Strange Fruit. So he knew cultural figures in New York City, including Barney Josephson, who was the owner of Cafe Society, which was located in Sheridan Square in Greenwich Village. And he said, I want Billie Holiday to sing it. Cafe Society was unique because it was the only integrated nightclub in New York City. And it was also a sort of spoof on the wealthy and powerful. It was called the right place for the wrong people. The Mater D was dressed as a bum. It was, it was a sort of alternative uh, cultural space. All the lights would be turned out. All the waitstaff would stop serving so there'd be silence. And then the lights would come on and Billy would do her song. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees in my time i would say billy holiday was a very courageous woman sunny rollins tenor saxophonist the bulging the twisted mouth to record strange fruit to record strange fruit i mean that was a powerful song a powerful song and bring it to light let people hear what's really going on they knew it and let them get an idea of what it was lynching and the heinous crime that it was how can anybody accept that he is a fruit the first time it happened when she was finished.
was silence. And because nobody quite knew what to do. And then one person started clapping. And then the whole audience burst out into applause. It was an amazing, cathartic moment. And, and the rest is history. In many ways, it becomes one of the first real overt and radical statements about the, the mistreatment of blacks. Southern trees. About injustice, but about violence. And it's a song that's banned off a of radio. It's a song that her record company at the time refused to record. But all of that resistance to hearing this particular song only built the excitement and the interest around the song. And so in many ways, Billie Holiday becomes the first real personification for us of an artist activist. From the an artist activist in the mindset of one who utilizes their art to radicalize others and to speak to the injustices of the world and to create a type of resistance culture. She doesn't write it, but this song becomes a marker of who she is and her legacy on jazz. Of the gallant By this point in her career, Billie Holiday has done her part to move jazz away from the swing bands into something more modern by connecting with one of the great saxophone soloists of the swing era, Lester Young. Well, where Lester Young and Billie Holiday come in is that they invent the cool aesthetic. Joel Dinnerstein teaches jazz history at Tulane University in New Orleans. It is what I call an urbane blues romanticism. Both of them adapt a more melodic approach to jazz. They both depend on rhythm and expansion of the beat and where they will come in and the kinds of chords and runs they will play. I feel myself come through with love and I'll have nothing more to They both use silence and space better than almost anyone before them. And if you listen to Billie Holiday's early records before this period, she sounds much more like a blues singer, like Bessie Smith. She shouts more, there's less nuance. And starting in her recordings for Columbia around 1937, there is that same Lester Young quality, the cool aesthetic. It's elegant, it's slower. There's a real sense of knowing which are the right notes, which are the right words, how do you phrase. All of which will contribute in 1939 to the power of strange fruit. Robert Mirapol. It was an unusual song, because Billy basically did love songs, and this was not a love song. And at first she seemed a bit reluctant, but then she embraced the song. Billy wanted to record the song, and her record label, Columbia, 
didn't want to record it. So she went to a smaller Commodore Records, and it was recorded there, and I think it was recorded as a B-side. Well, it landed on the hit parade, and it was it was a funny circumstance because I, I think it went up to like number eight or number six, but radio stations were refusing to play it. So the fact that it did so well, while it wasn't being played on the radio, is, is truly remarkable. 1940s America. And a song goes viral without social media, but by word of mouth. Billy was told not to sing the song, that it made America look bad, and she refused to stop singing. The FBI started following her. She was a drug addict. But because she was singing a politically explosive song, they went after her. So she spent a year in prison, and because she had a felony conviction, the law was that you couldn't sing, you couldn't perform. To drop. Billie Holiday loses her cabaret license, the card that lets jazz singers perform legally in bars and clubs. Now she has no way to make a living with her music. Don't know There's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Ultimately, she died in her 30s, handcuffed to a hospital bed awaiting arraignment on another drug charge. Strange Fruit and her refusal to stop singing it is what caused all of this harassment of her. Um, So she paid a very high price. Life is bad. Gloom and misery everywhere. So her basic image is she's a tragic figure. I mean, she was a tough, raucous woman who got, by the virtue of becoming a junkie, changed into a kind of tragic artist and tragic female myth. And that's the way we know her. The treatment of Billie Holiday versus Ella Fitzgerald and others really bothers me. There's a way in which the suffering of Billie Holiday is fetishized. The other thing that happened to Billie Holiday is she was the one that was humiliated around drugs. It wasn't Charlie Parker. She's the one that got arrested for heroin and put in prison for a year. They singled her out, and she was made to publicly say she was sorry in the 1940s in ways that none of the male musicians had to go through. There are some who would make Billie Holiday a tragic, romantic figure, like Violetta in Verdi's opera La Traviata, the woman with the checkered past who is redeemed in the end by dying, or Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. I've always depended on the kindness Strange. Or Amy Winehouse. Love is a game. But there are certain slots that are fantasized for women in this music, and when you break out of them, it creates a problem for some people. You're listening to The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just who do you think I am? You 
raise my taxes, freeze my wages, and send my son to Vietnam. You give me second-class houses and second-class schools. Do you think that all colored folks are just second-class fools, Mr. Backline? I'm gonna leave you with a backlash blue. And that artist activist persona is something that we see emerging even more in the 1950s by the time Billie Holiday is dying. Because by that time, we get people like Nina Simone, who gives us the next real poignant song addressing injustice. And so you've got two pivotal women who are associated with jazz culture, who are creating some of the most radical forms of resistance culture in America. Well, what's free to you? What's free to me? Same thing it is to you, you tell me. No, no, you tell me. <laughs> no, no. Nina Simone in New York. 1968. It's just a feeling. I've had a couple of times on stage when I really felt free. And that's something else. I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear. I mean, really, no fear. If I, if I could have that half of my life, no fear. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just what do you think I got to lose? I'm gonna leave you with the Backlash Blues. You're the one will have the blues, not me. Just wait and see. Backlash Blues. The words are by African-American poet Langston Hughes, one of the last poems he wrote before he died in 1967. But the power of the story goes to the storyteller, Nina Simone. Alabama's gotten me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi God Born Eunice Kathleen Wayman in 1933 in North Carolina, she changed her name to hide her work as a musician from her family. Her parents thought it was wrong for a woman to work in the man's world of jazz. But through music, she would become one of America's most outspoken activists. Nina Simone studied Bach and the classics and what was going on in front of her own eyes. <laughs> Mississippi Goddamn. Well, for me, Mississippi Goddamn is prophecy. In that song, we have Nina Simone essentially prophesizing what is going to happen to America if America does not stop and take notice of what has been happening in reference to black America and the civil rights struggle. But my country is full of lies. We're all gonna die and die like flies. I'm 
I mean, when she says we're all going to die and we're going to die like flies, I mean, that that's anger. It is a shifting rhetorically of protest music because up until that time, protest music had largely been, it was radical in some of its ideology, but not in terms of its performance. It was spiritually centered. It was reflective of black church culture, but also black spirituality, forgiveness, of unity. But you have in Mississippi, goddamn, Nina Simone speaking angrily, but Nina Simone also reflecting what is this growing discontent with nonviolent protest and resistance. Of course, not all the women of jazz are making protest music. What they want is to make music on an equal footing with the men. But women in jazz like Mary Lou Williams face obstacles that the men never have to worry about. One of the initial obstacles that she faced as a woman was the vulnerability that women who were operating in these very public male-centered spaces experience at what was becoming the height of her popularity or her presence in the Andy Kirk band. She's, she is sexually assaulted on a train um, as she's traveling from Kansas City to Chicago to make a recording session. And when she gets to Chicago, despite being sexually assaulted, she simply goes into the studio and just starts working. There's no discussion about, this happened to me on the train. These are the effects. These are the physical effects that I'm experiencing from this. This notion is that I'm just going to do the work. And unfortunately, that notion of physical and sexual vulnerability was a constant in the lives of both black and white women who operated in jazz. Melba Liston, famous trombonist Melba Liston and arranger Melba Liston, who actually collaborates with Mary Lou Williams in the late 50s and 60s, also talks about her experiences on the road and how physically vulnerable she was and how she was raped numerous times. And the notion was that, you know, you, you went to the doctor or you didn't seek medical care, you just kept pushing, you kept working because the notion of talking about those things made the people around you question your presence and, and question your strength. While others around them may have known about these things based on their personal relationships, these were not necessarily things that these women talked about in the context of their public interviews and their public lives. And I don't think anyone would have cared. I don't think anyone would have cared, particularly about the black women that experienced this, because, you know, black women 
in many ways were not acknowledged on the same spectrum of femininity as white women. And so their virtue, their sexuality would not have been valued. And the sexual assault and the physical assaults that they experienced would have been seen as par for the course. I would even say it amongst the black community as well. So while right now we're experiencing this blossoming of consciousness with the Me Too movement, these women could have greatly benefited from being able to publicly voice these experiences. Now, by the 1940s, jazz is changing thanks to bebop. The big band arrangers like Mary Lou Williams need to figure out if there's a place for them in the new order. There's a lot of discussion about her in the 1940s and 50s and her friendships with Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, and Dizzy Gillespie. There's many stories about her taking them to the New York Public Library and them studying the scores of Debussy and Hindemith and Stravinsky to look at the ways in which these composers realized harmony, structure, and form. So she was very much interested in these other forms of music, not just jazz. And we know this to be true because by 1944, 1945, Mary Lou Williams has written a set of symphonic poems. Now that is European classical terminology, not arrangements, they are symphonic poems. This is a cycle of symphonic works based on the zodiac signs, so there's 12 of them. One thing Mary Lou Williams is doing is declaring her rights out loud, not just as a composer and musician, but as a woman. These are not rights handed out on a silver platter. In their work through jazz, women like Mary Lou have to claim them. She takes a hiatus from jazz and has a religious conversion experience. I think it was just a period, a turning point in my life. No, I just think I stopped on my own. I began praying in Paris. I began praying for at least 10 years straight. Off and on, Dizzy Gillespie, such a wonderful guy, he'd call me to go out on gigs with him and I'd go back in the house and pray again, you know. in America, she shared her faith with the New York jazz musicians like Thelonious Monk. She would take them to church. Right, I'd take them to church with me. I took Monk. The first time I took Monk, he was, uh, he was frightened. He thought he was going to die. <laughs> he said nobody ever asked him to go to church before. <laughs> he slipped and fell as we were going in. <laughs> 
was really frightening. I took Bud Powell and several musicians to Dizzy Gillespie Church with me. Her faith really brought her to some of the same traditions and practices as it relates to the composition of sacred music within the Catholic Church. When you look at her sacred works that were composed between 1963 and 1970, they really show that she was consciously thinking about not only faith, um, but she was thinking about worship practices and liturgy and what that meant. So she's looking back, but also looking forward. But it also how her music could be a conduit for conversations about social change and social justice. So in that period of 63 to 70, she wrote a dozen hymns. So she starts out by experimenting with hymns. One of the first is a hymn in honor of St. Martin de Porres, who was the first black saint canonized by the Catholic Church. So this is happening right in the height of the civil rights movement. Very complex harmonies, very complex setting of the text, I mean, to the point that it could not be sung by an amateur choir. It was recorded by a professional choir. And so you have her reflecting what was this tradition of high art in the church, a la Palestrina and all of these post-Council of Trent composers within the Catholic Church. But her taking a subject that was very much a part of the pulse of the time to take and set this piece around the canonization in the life of a black saint in the heart of the civil rights movement was pretty profound. Melba Liston was an arranger and a trombonist. She was born 1926 in Kansas City, Missouri. So what's ironic is she's born in 1926 in Kansas City, and Mary Lou Williams arrives in Kansas City late 1927, early 1928. So they would not have known each other by virtue of age, but I think the fact that you have these two very influential black women instrumentalists inhabiting one space speaks to the importance of Kansas City in terms of opportunity and access as it relates to black musicianship. What a fantastic trombonist she was. Well, she's a fantastic trombonist who struggled to be members of various bands, and she was a good enough trombonist to be in Dizzy Gillespie's group that went abroad. She meets Dizzy Gillespie, and the meeting of Dizzy Gillespie is kind of a turning point for her. And so much of her history in the 1950s and 60s is associated with her different points of tenure with Dizzy Gillespie. 
She's a part of Dizzy Gillespie's first State Department band. Okay, the idea was really provoked by Soviet cultural activities. So the Soviet Union started sending the Bolshoi Ballet abroad to showcase its world perspective. In the United States, everybody's anxious about what's going to be happening to the newly emerging independent post-colonial nations. And the fear is that they're going to side with the Soviet Union over the United States. So in the 1950s, the U.S. government decided that it would use art and culture as a means of trying to stop the spread of communism. And so the State Department began to enlist musicians as well as intellectuals to go into different points of the world to give concerts and lectures. And this was part of this anti-communist Cold War propaganda. The idea is to send jazz musicians overseas as ambassadors, to use music to spread the idea of democracy. It's pure propaganda. But the biggest names in jazz at the time, like Louis Armstrong, aren't interested. So the government looks elsewhere. So they look for a younger band, and the name they come up with, Dizzy Gillespie. And Dizzy Gillespie, the first meeting of the band, he asked Melba Liston to come and to bring arrangements. And some of the men were not very happy to have her in the band. She's taking a job from a man, the typical thing. And Dizzy did not say anything. He just told Melba, pass out the arrangements. And she passes out these arrangements. And the men start to work their way through them. And these arrangements are difficult. And so she travels with them. She's arranging pieces for their concerts. She's arranging pieces for their recording sessions. They travel to Africa. They go to Asia. They go to South America. They go to the Middle East. And so she becomes this kind of symbol of how women are fitting into this ever-evolving, complex, post-war, Cold War-era America jazz scene. I, I want to point out to people, because I often get this question. These women would not have thought of feminism in the context that we think of feminism now. Their presence on the stage and the quality of their work for them would have been the argument that they put forth against the sexism, against the marginalization, against the racism their very presence and their ability to continue to work and to produce music that was high quality would have been what they would have utilized as a counter to all of those isms that would have been placed against them. And I think all these themes that were explored in jazz then are newly resonant to a younger generation of people. Matana Roberts is from Chicago. She's a jazz sax player and sound artist. She's worked with alternative bands like TV on the Radio and Deerhoof, but at its roots, her music is jazz. Galeen, 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 galo. Galeen, galeen, 
Both jazz artists and popular artists are trying to refer to those signs and symbols that we know from the history of this music as a means of creating a feeling and an inspiration um, appropriate to this moment. Esperanza Spaulding has been doing some amazing, amazing things. Esperanza Spaulding is a bass player and a vocalist. She left high school early and started university at Portland State when she was 16. When she was 25, she was playing with McCoy Tyner of the John Coltrane Quartet. Her music is the kind of modern jazz that borrows from all kinds of musical sources. Jazz, fusion, rock, Latin, dance. But it sticks to the roots of cool, pioneered by Lester Young and Billie Holiday more than 80 years ago. When he starts to play this song, now you can Esperanza Spaulding, a jazz musician, shocked fans of pop music when out of nowhere she won the Grammy for the Best New Artist in 2011, an award the pop writers thought would go to Drake or Justin Bieber. She was 26 years old at the time and the first jazz artist ever to win a Grammy in that category. It is just music, but what we often do is we try to divorce music from experience and from the people who create it. And the things that make the music what they are are the experiences, the perspectives that these individuals bring in the form of expression through their instruments or through their voices. We can't divorce them because music does not exist in a vacuum. Prince once said of Esperanza Spaulding, I thought I could play bass until I met her. And in an interview with UNESCO, the United Nations Cultural Organization, she said, I just love that more women who are interested in this music just go for it now. I've never thought that's weird, I'm a woman, as that road had already been opened up by the time I got into playing. Play 
music is not shielded from what happens in these environments that it grows out of. And I think in every form, every evolutionary stage of jazz, what we've seen is how these forms of cultural expression have brought light to or reflected what have been the experiences of the people in the environments that they engaged with. And what women see and what they experience in the history of jazz, from Lil Hardin Armstrong to Billie Holiday to Mary Lou Williams and Melba Liston, up to Nina Simone and Esperanza Spaulding, it is just different than it is for the man. Listening to the Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. Next time, Jazz and Politics on the World Stage. I'm Alana Bridgewater. I'll tell you what freedom is to me no fear. If I, if I could have that half of my life, no fear. <laughs>